All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on 2 Samuel. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome to all of you today. We are in the middle of the saga of David and Absalom. I was thinking just before class started, we have gone chapter after chapter with David, and we still have many more chapters left with David. In terms of Old Testament figures, he looms very, very large, doesn't he? Not only in terms of content, but in terms of prominence and importance. I was trying to think about that in my mind as you, as you gather the most, the most prominent names. Obviously, Abraham is huge. Moses is huge. David is huge. and I mean, obviously you're talking about the post-Diluvian world, but I'd, I'd be hard-pressed to think of, of any others that loom larger than those three. That's the, class that, that's the class that David's in. So this is a wonderful blessing we have to study his life and to see how he typifies, how he points forward uh, to his son, and his Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 18, this is where we left off, chapter 18, verse 6, and we finally come to the death of Absalom. Of course, Absalom has divided the kingdom against David. David has fled uh, Jerusalem. Um, Absalom has followed his father's footsteps in this respect, that just as uh, David was guilty of gross violation of the sixth and fifth commandment, adultery and murder, so now also Absalom. But there are some key differences. I mean, while they're similar enough that it may give us an indicator of David's psychology and maybe to some extent the inappropriateness of his response. There are some key differences, though, we, we want to highlight, highlight because the nature of these things are, are vastly different. Whereas David's was personal in nature, of his, own, of his own person seeing Bathsheba, of his own volition having Uriah killed, and limit, somewhat limited in their scope in this sense, Absalom's really transcend the merely personal. His acts of, of murder are treasonous. They're against the king, the anointed one of God. They're really against the whole nation as it stands so that he can take over and be in power. Uh, so thus, the fifth commandment is much greater in scope, his violation of it. And then also the sixth commandment, uh, chiefly being when he violates the concubines of David who are left back and does this publicly as a, as a, public, as a public act of shaming uh, the, the, the king. So these are, are obviously gross and egregious sins uh, that really even dwarf David's own and thus, and thus bring swift judgment and curse upon Absalom. 
we've talked to the, an, the anti-type that Absalom is to David. David is next in line to the throne, but leaves everything in God's hands. Absalom, he may well be next in line to the throne, but he's trying to take and grab and grasp hold of it um, long before the time. So there is type and anti-type here with, with uh, David and Absalom. All right, so we come to the point now, and we just got into this chapter last week toward the end of the class where uh, the two armies are going to go into conflict, the army of David and the army of Absalom. Verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword, which is a very interesting expression. I think the study, the study Bible, as is typically the case, and frequently for good, takes a very mild reading. Rough terrain disrupted tactics and worked against Absalom's troops. That seems to me to be understating it a bit. Why does the author of 2 Samuel choose this very visceral uh, language? And I think here the key is, um, in all likelihood, David is outnumbered, but David wins, and he wins because he's the Lord's anointed and the Lord is at work with him. The Lord has turned creation itself against Absalom and his rebellious army, against his rebellious people. And so I think that that's the point uh, that, that the author is trying to make in phrasing it this way and in, in depicting this scene where the, where the forest is devouring. And I, it may well be the, that the army, you know, pockets of the army got lost or whatever else and couldn't fight that day. And, in terms of like what is the literal content of this. but And it may be that some of them perished in the forest. Who knows? But the point, the point that the author wants to draw out is that God and even creation itself are fighting on the side of his anointed over and against the rebels. All right, so Absalom loses here too. Here too, I think we can gain a little bit of insight as we look back and kind of ask ourselves, why is it that David fled Jerusalem? Uh, not likely in fear, not likely in, out of a sense of, I must do this or, or else I'll lose. Um, so that colors in a little bit of the backstory for us. Verse 9, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, Absalom was riding on his mule. Now, riding on a mule we've talked about is part of the Davidic kingly theme. And we've seen the, those in David's line riding on a mule. For whatever reason, this is the choice of the king's uh, vehicle. And that bears itself out in Jesus' selection to enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Okay. So what we see here is an image uh, of Absalom riding on his mule. He is the 
He is the pretend king, and thus he is writing on uh, what, a, what the king would write on. Now, Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, that is, Absalom's head, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. Now, with his hair caught up in the oak, of course, we're, we're brought back to the foreshadowing in chapter 14, verse 26, where we're told how weighty and beautiful and gorgeous Absalom's hair is. And the clear implication there is that Absalom knows it. You know, he was probably an ancient shampoo commercial model or something. <laughs> uh, so so joke, joking aside, you have, you have this theme of the, the mighty being cast down, the lowly being raised up, and here is one who has flaunted himself as mighty and as the, as the true king, and he's, he, he's pushed David out of Jerusalem. He's slept with his concubines. He's riding on his donkey. I mean, he owns the world. And here, I mean, just what an embarrassing thing to happen. <laughs> I mean, what an embarrassing thing to happen just on its face. Uh, the embarrassment is deepened by a theological understanding. Remember Deuteronomy, let me grab the reference, Deuteronomy 21, 23. Cursed is every man who hangs from a tree. I mean, if that, I mean, not only is Absalom sitting there going like, uh-oh. Well, let me, let me put this in order. I imagine, ouch. It can't feel very good to hang from your hair. I don't really care how thick it is. Your scalp's still attached. So, ouch. Uh-oh. Uh, I can't get down. And perhaps, cursed is the man who hangs from the tree. Uh, all of these things entering his mind. Uh, what we also see is just as the forest, back in verse 8, devoured more people that day than the sword, here the forest is again acting on behalf of God and has captured Absalom, this great oak tree. Look at the language, too, when considering creation's involvement. He was suspended between heaven and earth. Now, I will point out an opinion that is, that is um, in some respects, maybe unpopular, but I still, think it's, I still think it's true. When we look at David's sons, the sons of David, we can find types, foreshadowing of the son of David. We talked about that with uh, the innocent son of David who died on account of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, that the son of David dies on account of the sins of others, and how that points us to our Lord Jesus, the true son of David, who dies on account of the sins of others. Here, too, Absalom, for all his faults, for all the ways he shows us who Christ is not, here Absalom is hung from a tree, okay? his hair is tangled, and he's suspended between heaven and earth this son of David. Think of the similarities between the son of David, Jesus, hung from the tree of the cross, 
his hair tangled in the crown of thorns, right, and suspended between heaven and earth. In fact, St. Paul seems to make this very point connecting this with Deuteronomy 21. Uh, Paul makes this point in Galatians 3.13. He became a curse for us. Christ became a curse for us. So Absalom as the son of David, again, in, in all these ways he shows us who Christ is not here he shows us who Christ is and, and what the true son of David will, will come and, and do and be like. And while this is just pure curse for Absalom, and rightfully so, it's justice. For Jesus, you know, it is, uh, it is pure blessing for our sake that he endures a, a humiliation and becomes a curse for us and dies on behalf of the sins of others and is hung between heaven and earth. So I simply point that out because when you think of Absalom hanging from the tree, that son of David, think of Jesus hanging from the tree. All right. Well, one more detail. One more detail at the end of verse 9. As he is suspended between heaven and earth, we are told the mule that was under him went on. And, of course, this is loaded symbolism. I mean, not only does it tell us just the tangible details, but loaded symbolism. Because, again, this is the king, the sign of kingship that he had adopted. And that sign of kingship departs, (laughs) departs right out from under him. And he is suspended uh, as the cursed one that, that he is. All right, verse 10, a certain man saw it and told Joab. Of course, Joab, the commander of David's army, and Joab has proven time and time again that he is not a man to be trifled with. If there's a violent uh, deed that needs to be done, Joab's pretty much willing to do it. Um, when When I just picture a biblical embodiment of brute force and brutality and not not senseless irrational violence but just violence uh it's joab i mean joab was what would we say we don't really have any more heroes like this we're too soft of a culture i don't know i'd have to think long and hard about who joab is like in our culture we probably don't have anyone like him so so someone, you know, someone sees this, the servants of David sees this, see this, that's verse 9. And then a certain man comes and tells Joab, we're not told who this certain man is. It, it may be that at one point in time they knew that was passed down in the oral tradition, or it may just say, hey, one of these guys. But a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? Well, why not? Uh, Because David had already said, Be merciful to my son Absalom. So that's why he doesn't. And the whole whole troop, the whole army uh, knows this. So he continues, why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. 
But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man, Absalom. Okay. So in the first place, fealty to the king. I'm not going to disobey his direct order. Uh, even with a thousand coins of silver in my hand, David's likely to kill me for not, for not listening to him, and, and especially for being merciless uh, to his son. Okay, there's, there's point one. Then verse 13, point two. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. I love this. Yeah, right, you would have paid me back. You would have let me hang for it. You wouldn't have given me any money. You would have made sure that I, it's like this points out that just the brutality, the Machiavellian nature of, of Joab and his literary you know, embodiment here. All right, all right. So that's verse 13. Verse 14, Joab's response. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. Perfect line for Joab. What are we talking for? And he took three javelins. Interesting language here that could be spears, could possibly be arrows. Uh, Javelins is the choice. He took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. Uh, so, So pierced in the heart, yet one more allusion to our Lord Jesus, pierced with the Roman spear in the heart on the cross. So... One more poignant, poignant illusion. Um, but this is curious. This is curious enough. I went and looked in our Concordia commentary to see, I mean, did he throw all three at once? Sorry, I was feeling a little macabre. My inner 12-year-old boy was very curious about these details. Unfortunately, Steinman didn't give me any. So, so we're left to imagine. I, I think that heart, well, let me read a, a line more, and I'll tell you why I think this. Um, And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Okay, so apparently these these javelin thrusts to the heart, while they may have been mortal, uh, it was a slow enough death that... Um, the other, the young men, the armor bearers came over and did it. So, I, so, so I suspect that what this is, I mean, while, while the poetic language is there for a purpose, the heart, and that in, in, and, of, in and of itself, you know, in the narrative of this story has a certain degree of poignancy, all the more when we think of its fulfillment in Christ. And I'm sure that that's why the Holy Spirit has that there. Probably a more literal, concrete, like, okay, what happened? He probably stood back and threw three spears, just one, two, three, and the heart was just probably like the torso, you know. And, uh, and maybe, he was, uh, maybe, maybe he was, in fact, uh, dying quickly, but the other men rushed in and, and finished the deed. So who knows? That's, that's my best reconstruction based on the sort of limited and and strange information we have here in the text. But again, not to lose the forest for the trees, the, the point is uh, that, that he, was, he was hung from a tree and pierced in the heart, just like the son of David who became a curse for us. Sad, sad end for Absalom, but... Truth be told, truth be told, and we can, I think we can be a little conflicted about this to be fair, but truth be told, our baseline 
probably ought to be good riddance. Good riddance. Uh, I mean, the, the nastiness, the brutality, the wickedness, um, returning, returning evil for good. David's good, cold as it may have been, of bringing him back. Um, that good is Absalom returns evil for it in rebelling against the king. Um, the figure of Absalom, probably unlike like our predominant reading, ought to be one of disgust, and we ought to be like fine with this. Um, the secondary theme would be sort of one of sympathy, but I don't think that that's much intended. And we're going to see that kind of play out, that drama, that emotional drama, if you will, or psychological drama, uh, play out in, in the verses to come. Um, yes, sir. When you talk about the young men, uh, it, it reminds me of that little thing with Elijah and his servant. Remember when he runs after Naaman? to get the money and the silver and all that. And then he comes back and Elijah asks him, uh, where have you been, you know? Mm. Oh, you went and you got the silver and the set of clothes and all that, remember? And the mm. leprosy that uh, Naaman had done mm -hmm. now on you. Mm. Yes, I do recall that, yes, yes. I'm wondering if that's what this guy was thinking about. Oh, no. This is a repeat of another story, and I'm not going to be part of it. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Those are interesting connections to think about. Um, all right, so what's Joab do next? Well, he blows the shofar, the victory, the victory trumpet. So verse 16, then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. For Joab restrained them, and they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest. Again, interesting, one more point, which Jesus is, he's not thrown disrespectfully or anything, but he is placed into the tomb, into the pit, and here Absalom is, is put into the pit. The differences emerge. Jesus is treated respectfully. Absalom, not at all. This is a... This is a burial of, of disgrace and insult. It's about the same way they treated the pagan kings uh, that were conquered or slain in battle. So Joab blows the trumpet. The troops come back. Um, they took Absalom, threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones, likely a kind of uh, anti-monument, you know, anti-monument, a place where... If anyone wanted to go and, and see or, or came across, they'd, they'd see what happens uh, to a, a rebel the likes of Absalom. <clears throat> and then it says, all Israel fled everyone to his own home. That's those who had followed Absalom. They were routed in the forest. Uh, David's men get pulled back. Absalom is buried in this uh, disrespectful way, and they all flee to their own homes. Good idea. Verse 18, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no sin, son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. 
And I think somewhere we are told that Absalom had sons, but we speculate that they must have died in young age on the basis of him saying he has no, no heirs. Uh, all of that kind of aside from the point. I think, I think as this author has done, he, he continues to show that there's way more than meets the eye in this text than just simple, simple historical events. He wants us to ponder now on the self-made monument of uh, Absalom, you know, make a monument to himself versus the monument that ends up marking him in his life, this big pile of stones in the middle of the forest. So I think that's the contrast. I think that's the juxtaposition between these two monuments. Uh, what Absalom thought of himself in his own eyes and where he ended up. So, so right back to that major theme that seems to run all throughout First and Second Samuel, uh, the, the proud are, are cast down, the mighty are cast down, and the humble and lowly are exalted. Can that also be God's judgment because he had no sons, or the ones that he had died? Yeah, you could understand that as God's judgment. They probably would have understood that as such in, in some respects. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, again, Absalom, I mean, the only, yeah. Well, let's read on. I won't belabor the point. Let's read on. We'll have more time to discuss what I'm, what I'm considering. So, verse, uh, verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. So, uh, yeah, this is to protect Ahimaaz, obviously. Verse 21, Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. Like, you don't want to be the Cushite. <laughs> yeah. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. All right? I don't... It's very strange, isn't it? Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gate and said, See another man running alone. The king said, He also brings news. The watchman said, 
I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. All right, so two different messengers uh, want to go and, well, one wants to go and the other is commanded to go. Um, I'll just read to you what the study note says. Ahimaaz is anxious to bring news of the victory to David, but he fails to tell about Absalom's death. Expecting an angry reaction from the king, Joab sends a Cushite to bear the message. Okay, And then it goes on to kind of sermonize here. Official messengers must be faithful in delivering the news given them to tell, even if their message is not welcome. This holds true especially for ministers of the gospel. How blessed are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel, who tell us that our King Jesus reigns with mercy. All right, well, David obviously mourning the loss of his son. I wish that I had died instead of him is not in and of itself a wrong sentiment. St. Paul has the same kind of sentiment, he, you know, for his, uh, for his fellow Jews who are rejecting Christ. He wishes that he would perish instead of them. So, you know, nothing, nothing per se wrong with uh, David's response of mourning. But we'll see... Uh, We'll see in the next chapter what comes of this and what comes of this dynamic. All right, any, uh, any questions you have, any thoughts you have, anything glaring that I missed that you'd like to point out? All right, off we go then into chapter 19. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. 
The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son, Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Ouch. Ouch. The first part, love those who hate you. Okay. Hate those who love you. That's quite the accusation. So, I mean, Joab here in no uncertain terms. This is why I don't know if, I, I mean, I don't know if Joab's a very likable character, to be honest with you, but at least this part of Joab is. Joab could care less. He goes right up to the king and says, hey, this is how it is. You've got it all entirely upside down. And, and um, he, Joab is calling him out of his vocation as father, isn't he? And he's saying, ah, you've got the vocation of king. And all the people who lost their lives and sacrificed their lives and fought valiantly for you, now you're mourning uh, over, over your son, over your enemy, and causing them to mourn and be sad when they should be happy. So look, in, in whatever paternal love you're having for your son, uh, you, are, you are not executing your vocation as, as king, as father of the whole people. All right, so Joab goes, goes right after him. Um, we left off in the, just the, uh, the middle of verse 6. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today, Joab is saying to David, that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Yeah, Joab puts it, puts it quite as it is. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. So, in effect, David listens to Joab. I mean, he, he by taking his seat again, he ceases the mourning of a father and begins to act as a father of the people, as their king. I mean, here, I'll just, I'll just say here, because Joab's simply too complex to analyze well. Uh, but here, at least, Joab acts like a true friend. And a true friend is one who will give you painful truths for your good, if it's truly for your good, you know. All manipulations aside, and that's certainly what Joab does here. Um, all manipulations aside, he goes to David and he says, Get your head screwed on straight or you're going to lose everything and you're going to be in a worse situation than you were in before this all happened. Uh, and by the way, start acting like a king. So David needed to hear that and that's precisely what happened. Boy, we all need to hear that from time to time. It hurts to hear that. It hurts so bad. 
Ooh, the ego is sensitive and tender. Ha. Uh, and then our, our tendency is to despise the one who corrects us. Yeah, that's our tendency. But to have the wisdom of David, even in the midst of a very painful personal situation, to take good advice and to uh, not, not disregard or disrespect the one who brings that advice to us. Um, these, are, these are merits of David that, that are worth emulating, worth pondering and thinking on. All right. A little bit of a resolution, but the action moves on, and indeed so does verse 8. We're just in the middle of verse 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Amasa is uh, David's nephew and also the cousin of Joab and Abishai, as the study note is reminding me here. Okay. Are you not my bone and my flesh? So Amasa was, was on Absalom's side. Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. Ooh, so Joab gets a little bit of a, of a blow and a rebuke. But, it, again, I would make the case that that's not because of what Joab said to David. David is obedient to that. This rebuke comes because Joab was the one that killed his son. So, they, like, against direct orders of the king, right? So this is what... Uh, this is what Joab gets. Joab gets replaced by Amasa. And here again, here again, you see, uh, you see David's shrewdness in this really counterintuitive way because Amasa, he ought to count as like a betrayer, flesh of his flesh, bone of his bone, betrayed and fought against him. Hey, I'm at peace with you. You, you know, you haven't even apologized. You're it's just the person who was leading the rebellion. He's dead. So, by the way, I embrace you, I welcome you, and in fact, I'm going to honor you by putting you as commander of my army. That, that takes everyone connected with him, including everyone who is on the other side, and brings them in near to David. So, I, again, this is just counterintuitive but masterful leadership and psychology you know, to analyze. It's very, very interesting. All right, so... Uh, he takes the place of Joab, that's verse 13. And then verse 14, And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and your servants. So the king came back to Jordan, backtracking exactly the way. This is the return of the king. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. 
boy, there is still some screwed up understanding and theology uh, on the part of these of the people of Israel and, and Judah, the, the broader people, because they're saying, you know, look, we're the ones that anointed Absalom. Whose decision is it to anoint anyone? God's. What we actually have here is, I think, a, a maybe a subtle but nonetheless evident foreshadowing of the divided kingdom and this idea of, hey, we'll take everything into our own hands. We'll anoint who we want to anoint, which is the people ruling themselves as opposed to God ruling the people. And in a theocratic state, in, in the state of ancient Israel, that's just rebellion, period. All right, so we see their misunderstanding big time. But we simply pass over that, or more or less pass over that, and get to this main point, the return of the king. So as he went out, so he comes in. The peop- he seems to be reconciled with the people. All right. Verse 16, And Shimei the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Bahurim hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Yeah, I think the study note, yeah, if we look at the study note for verses 16 and 17, those who had opposed David now took the initiative in being reconciled to him, lest he punish their treason. Ziba was among them, though he had not opposed David, but had aided him in his flight. That's back at chapter 16. Perhaps he saw that his ruse concerning Mephibosheth would be exposed. Yeah, and then he reaffirmed his loyalty, hoping not to lose the reward he had received. That takes us back to chapter 16 and those ambiguous... You remember Zeba's the servant of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. And he indicates, Zeba indicates that Mephibosheth had rebelled against David. But there's question, there's question there as to Zeba's motivation. And we're, we're not really sure. But this is our only other data point in trying to figure out Zeba, coming up in these verses, that is. Okay, so Zeba in any way is listed amongst those who uh, go out to be reconciled with David, which is probably in and of itself telling. Verse 16, And Shammai the son of Gera the Benjaminite from Baharim hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David, and with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. That's just incredible language, isn't it? Don't take it to heart. (laughs) I know I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? 
But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Well, let's pause right there, um, just to make a couple of comments. A couple of comments. All of the enemies of the king are all going where? To the Jordan River. And what are they doing? Confessing their sins <laughs> and being absolved by the king. When John the Baptist comes preaching, where is he at? The Jordan River. And what's he, what's he announcing? Uh, who, is, who is he the forerunner of? The king. David's son, the true king, is right behind him, about to enter the Jordan, and he is saying, repent. And all the enemies are coming to the Jordan, repenting that they might receive mercy from the king. So one more type and way in which this whole narrative points out very clearly uh, our Lord Jesus. Okay, David, just like our Lord, has mercy. David has unthinkable mercy. So much mercy that it even ticks off Joab and lots of other people. It even threatens alienating his entire kingdom. Um, so great is his mercy. And he has mercy on those who hate him. There should be no... I mean, even, I mean, even the most generous kind of human mercy would be like, okay, well, I'm not going to kill you, but that's it. Uh, in the example of, of Amasa... He says, far more than that, you're going to be the commander of my army. So he, this, is, this isn't a mere forgiveness. Let's put it that way. This is a full embracing of them as the people of God, as his flesh and as his bone, and uh, as, as members of, of this household of God. Okay, so maybe that's enough parenthetically. Um, I interrupted the narrative artificially, but I wanted to point those things out before we got too far along. All right, verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, of course, son of Jonathan in between, but we're reminded here of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. We spent a lot of time talking about that already. I won't do it more. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Interesting. 
Interesting, interesting, interesting. To be absolutely honest with you, I'm not exactly sure it sorts anything out in my own mind. Except, like in terms of the interaction and, the, and what exactly happened, other than Mephibosheth is now revealed not at all to be anti-David, but in fact has kept himself in an expression of mourning, right? Not, not taking care of his feet, um, what were the other things? Uh, not washing, that kind of thing. Oh, I lost my verse. Do you know what verse it is where it describes all the things? 24, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. So, signs of mourning. So, uh, Mephibosheth continues then here. It's finally manifest. It was called into question earlier in chapter 16 by Ziba. And likely because, you know, maybe Ziba wanted a reward. It's hard to say, but Ziba was faithful to David. It's just really hard to know what's going on here. David, probably with the wisdom of his son Solomon, splits the land and says, okay, we're going to split the land between you. I see what's going on here. Two good men. I, this would be my take. Two good men having an issue between each other. Let's split the land. Um, it's obvious there's been some been some things going on, and I'm not going to judge it more than that. Um, but Mephibosheth, again, ostensibly at least, shows complete loyalty to David and shows that Mephibosheth has the heart of Jonathan, David's, David's friend. And that, that is brought to mind by the, by the language and the expressions of Mephibosheth. We're, we're brought to mind um, David and Jonathan all the way from way back. Mephibosheth doesn't even want part of the land. Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. All right, very, very interesting. Masterful storytelling and masterful use of what I, th- what I personally take. I mean, maybe it wasn't that way in, in the, uh, read by the original audience. Maybe they all knew exactly what was what. But at least then in the Holy Spirit's, Spirit's providence, uh, just masterfully ambiguous. There's so much ambiguity that invites you to consider and to think on and to ponder and meditate on uh, throughout First and Second Samuel. To be absolutely honest with you, I mean, this is the first time I've taught through these books, and I am I am just stunned because I never expected the literary mastery and the the intentional intentional. Uh, acts of, of making you, the reader, ponder and think and sort for yourself what's right and what's wrong and what's partially right and partially wrong. Very interesting. Very interesting experience. Okay, well, David is forgiving all his enemies. That's, that's the point. All right, verse 31. Now, uh, ooh, Berezili? Unless the double L is a yeah, like it is around here. <laughs> Perizzillai the Gileadite had come down from Ragalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. Here's David repaying those who were, you know, 
when he was going in exile and people were kind to him, now David is returning and he's repaying them. So that's the point here. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? <sighs> Such a great confession of old age. <laughs> uh. Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. I'm sure that is not how to pronounce it. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered him, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you, and all that you desire of me I will do for you. So, I mean, here, wow. What a figure. Barzillai, absolutely humble. Even though he's wealthy, wealthy enough to help the king and his whole household slash army fleeing in exile, wealthy enough to help them all, and extreme, extreme humility. And at the end of his age, he's invited to come live with the king, and he's like, look, it would be wasted on me. <laughs> just, you know, I'm an old man. And let me just die in my own land next to my parents that I can be buried with them. What an, what an incredible figure. What an incredible figure. Just absolute, absolute humility, beauty. Uh, just fantastic. Stands out like a light. All right. Uh, verse 41. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten it? Uh, have we eaten at all the... Excuse me. Let me, try, let me try this again. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, obviously the ten tribes, and in David also we have more than you. <laughs> oh boy foreshadowing of what's to come, isn't it? Judah and Israel divided. Who has more shares in the king? Who gets to decide who the king is? Oh, it's already right here. We're, when we go into kings, we're going to get sick of this. <laughs> we're going to get sick of this. Super depressing infighting, civil war amongst God's people. All right, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Why did you leave us out? We were not the first to speak of bring, were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? 
but the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. All right, foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. That's the place to stop. That's the place to stop today. David, David forgives his, it's the return of the king. All the people go to the Jordan, repenting of their sins. They're forgiven by the king, just like our Lord Jesus. There is a, there is a division amongst the peoples, though, and that's going to have, uh, that's going to have great effect, as we shall see in, uh, in Kings. Um, but we are at a point of, of relative, relative resolution. Not for long, though. Until next week, the Lord be with you.